Under the Influence podcast. I'm your host, Whitney Eckes, a serial entrepreneur and social media guru that has an infatuation with all things business related. On the show, we bring together brands, creators, and thought leaders to discuss the power of influence. Each episode is jam-packed with learnings, firsthand stories, and conversations from guests that truly have their finger on the pulse. Stay tuned as we dive into the stories and explore the impact they're making by getting under the influence. This is a Soulfire production. You guys, I have the episode for all of my career girlies. You guys, this guest, holy cow, she is a powerhouse. She is so freaking smart. And she is a genius when it comes to private equity, investment deals, and building out a career for herself. You guys, I'm so excited because I feel like I instantly made a friend, but I'm even more excited because I've been fangirling over this girl when, let me back up. I guess I've known of her like throughout this, like kind of just being in the San Diego community and then kind of watching her expand and grow and move in her career. And then more recently, I feel like she's just a genius at positioning herself and her personal brand on social media. And so I had to reach out to her because I was like, number one, you're freaking brilliant. I love all the moves you made. And then now like you're positioning yourself on TikTok and have this kick-ass beacons page that says everything that I need to know about you and is so digestible that I want to talk to you about this and I really want to get to know you better. So I brought her on. The conversation was epic. And The biggest thing about this episode is that it just brings so much value to us as women and understanding that if there's an industry, if there's a specific job you want, if there's a specific thing that you want to do, you can go out there and do it and you can empower yourself to go do it. Today on the episode, I have on Ms. Kira Jackson. She has built pioneering brand strategy for leading consumer brands, ranging from pre-revenue to public. She served as a founding team member in senior management in driving two agency acquisitions, the former an exit to a strategic buyer and the latter via private equity. She is currently an investor and head of partnerships in RX3 Growth Partners, a leading consumer-centric growth equity firm co-founded by Aaron Rodgers of the Green Bay Packers and backed by a community of professional athletes, celebrities, and institutional investors. Hello, what a fucking bio. You guys, I am so excited to welcome on Kira Jackson. And also, if you ever get the urge to want to savvy yourself up on private equity and PR and trend landscapes and social media, head over to her TikTok. But holy cow, this episode, I'm so excited. Kira, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, Kira. I am like the biggest fangirl of you. I think I told you earlier, I've just been stalking your content. It's so easily digestible and like you are bringing like this sexy trend to the private equity, angel investing, head of partnerships, your whole damn career, like element to TikTok. And I am so here for it. 
I am so grateful. I am such a fan of yours. So that means a lot coming from you, especially, but thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh. Of course. Okay. So let's start with a bit of your story. And I know that you did a whole blog post on it. So don't feel like you have to go into the nitty gritty of it, but like, I do want you to give some context to our listeners, how you started out because you've gone from PR to obviously being an angel investor to advising brands to now you're the head of partnerships of RX3. And that itself is just so awesome. And so like career defining that I want to hear a bit of like how you even got started. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I'll go as like micro as you want. As soon as it starts getting boring, just like, oh, we got to stop now. But yeah, so high level, I started my career in PR. As you know, I was the second employee at a boutique PR firm that focused specifically on health and wellness brands called Covet PR. And we started with, I think Suja was our first client. We launched Kopari. We worked with Kashi under Kellogg's, brought Epic through their General Mills acquisition, Beyond Meat through their IPO, and really had kind of like a siloed yet like consistent approach to tracking brands progress from like basically pre-revenue to public. So I worked at Covet for a good three years. I was living in San Diego at the time. It was my first job. So I remember being an intern and wearing like a white button down and building my first Ikea desk in our tiny little (laughs) office, which is such a fun memory. But yeah, I think about three years into my career, I recognized that for somebody in marketing or in PR, if you wanted to be amazing, like next level. Uh, What I did, I had to know everybody. Obviously doing the work is like a good part of that, but who you know is your network is extremely important, especially within that industry. So I think I recognized that I needed to move either to LA or New York. New York was on the table for a hot second. In retrospect, I'm very glad that that didn't (laughs) because that would be very cold right now. But I'm now moved to LA. I started working at another firm actually called Azione. And there I worked with like the equinoxes of the world, the moon juices, the rituals, the sweet greens, et cetera. Really got my fair share of like the cool, sexy, like D2C brand when that was like the vibe. And while I was there, I got a lot of context into kind of other aspects of the funnel. So how PR fit into a performance PR strategy could be your affiliate marketing strategy as well, or how influencer marketing could be leveraged and then take that content, leverage it for retention strategies or acquisition, et cetera. So we can get into a little bit more of that because it really came to light, I think, through Power Digital, which was where I ended up last. But I started kind of seeing all of that at ASEAN and working with these like dope brands that I loved. After Aziana, I had a brief stint at another agency where I did specifically like VIP digital influencer gifting and all of these sorts of like strategies and like marketing channels and unique relationships, they felt very different. So the relationships I was making at Covet were very different from the relationships I was making at Aziana. And then at my next firm, very, very different. So I felt like I was kind of knitting together all of these different worlds of humans, which allowed me, I think, to expand my network pretty quickly and pretty aggressively. So after that final agency, when I was doing VIP digital influencer gifting, Sarah Brooks was the founder and CEO of Covet PR, a really phenomenal friend. She came back and said, you can open an LA office now, you're ready. And basically, I want you to come back on board as kind of like the LA head of Covet. So I rejoined Covet PR. And at the time, it was sort of this like, this moment, it was a defining moment in kind of like the agency's background. It was, I think, year seven or something. And she was in a very unique situation where she had the opportunity to either 
scale her company and bring on the talent that would be required in order to be able to offer differentiated marketing channels beyond just like strictly PR, we could build all of that in-house. Or the alternative was she had an opportunity to sell to a strategic buyer, which in this instance was Power Digital Performance Marketing Agency. They had a very unique strategy at the time where they were acquiring single service agencies Mm -hmm. in categories and channels that they really needed to build out internally. So for them, one of those was PR. So we ended up, I mean, this is like very much truncating the story, but I was lucky enough to kind of have early insight into those two options and have somewhat of a say, I like to say somewhat of a say in making that (laughs) final decision. Truly it was hers, but she's the kind of person that just likes to take on opinions. And I was lucky to kind of be there for that. So decided that we were going to sell to Power Digital. We sold to Power Uh, at the time. We were about 45 at Covet when we sold. Wow. We sold to Power. Power was 150. And then we made... Yeah. So that in and of itself, like that integration was wild. That's a whole nother podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But beyond that, while we were at Power, we acquired a couple of other kind of like single service agency and data platform that integrated into our own proprietary technology that was being built out. So ultimately, like in a year and a half, we scaled Power Digital from 150 to 500. And I was the, yeah, and I was the VP of brand strategy. So I was overseeing like the majority of our top of funnel strategies for clients and for the firm. And that in and of itself is just like huge growth, let alone growth in a year and a half. And now in retrospect, I understand why that happened. It's really Power Digital at the time was owned by a private equity firm called Periscope, a smaller private equity firm. And now that I understand the private equity playbook, it makes sense. You know, it's a three to five X in five to seven years truncated in this instance because power was growing so quickly, but ultimately Periscope wanted to sell power to another buyer. So through that process, I was very lucky to be selected as one of 10 at the firm that ultimately helped with that final acquisition of Power Digital. And that was the acquisition by Court Square that happened in March. And that was my first brush with like interfacing with bankers and evaluating potential buyers, whether they be sponsors or strategics. And it was kind of the opportunity that I saw was a space, a a world, a future where I wasn't necessarily an external service provider that had to prove their value week after week or month after month, but I could come with inherent value on the money side. You come with obviously capital, but then also if you align yourself with the right firm, then you come with differentiated capital and true value add beyond just money. Wow. That is absolutely incredible. So (laughs) through this whole process, You were able to, I mean, first off, I love that you already brought so much value to the table that you're in these kind of closed door conversations of moving a company from, like you were saying, from one point to the next. You also mentioned the private equity playbook. So I want to kind of break this down a little bit because maybe for those that are listening, they're like, what the hell is private equity? What's (laughs) the difference between angel investing and other types of investing? Can you elaborate? what that playbook looks like and how you were obviously exposed to it firsthand, but how you started to kind of put it together. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I started to put it together when I started seeing it at RX3. I think it's really difficult to understand 
this industry is so gatekept and I think it's an aspect of jargon, but it's also so many of these conversations to your point are happening behind closed doors with five to 15 people in the room. It's crazy to think that at power only 10 people, I think 15 when it was all said and done had like insight into what was actually happening before it happened. The rest of the company found out right before it happened. So to your earlier point, I think the more before we got into kind of like the playbook and differentiation of different types of raising, like the reason I was in those rooms is, of course, because you work hard, you're good at what you do, you're smart. I like to think so. But more so than that is you force yourself in those rooms. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever talked about this publicly, but with Sarah, I sent her an email after I rejoined Covet. It was like a late night, Friday night email. I was sitting on my couch talking about like how fired up I was about the future of the agency, but how I wish I had more exposure to everything that was happening on like the brand building side. And my husband said, well, you should just tell Sarah that and then maybe you can get that exposure. And I was like, you're right, I really should. So I typed up this wild, like two glasses of wine deep email (laughs) to Sarah. And I basically said, like, give me exposure. I can take it. I can do so much more than I'm doing right now as just like, you know, a plug in the wheel or a spoke in the wheel, as somebody might say. And she responded and basically said, like, come over. I'm going to tell you everything. And that was the moment where you have to build trust to get to that stage. You have to have worked really hard. But she also gave me an opportunity and I took it. So there are instances, to your point earlier, where you just have to, like, truly force yourself into those rooms. But it is possible But yeah, I think when we think about the fundraising industry, there are different stages that a brand will raise funding. Their pre-seed round is usually prior to their pre-seed round, even sometimes is like their friends and family, strategic angels, people who can bring value. It's less about the amount of capital that they're bringing and the check size and more so their involvement and kind of like evangelism of the brand, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then past that, you got into like pre-seed or seed rounds where it's usually your first time bringing on institutional capital. An institution or institutional capital is kind of like your early stage venture capital firms. There are people who cut the checks that are like smaller than a million, et cetera. And then you can kind of like build up your cap table from there. So that's like your pre-seed, seed. And then once you get into like series A, B, C, et cetera, that's sort of like, you'll still have venture capital playing, especially if they're value-add investors, but you start to get into this realm of like where I operate, which is growth equity. So like my firm, for instance, we invest in brands that are post-series A. So we look for like 10 to 20 million trailing revenue and sort of invest five to 10 million from there. That's sort of like that realm of like, it's an inflection point for growth for the company. And they just need that like that capital injection, but also value add investors still who can get their hands dirty, roll up their sleeves, make introductions, et cetera. Mm. And then the final step before we could talk about IPOs or IPOs via SPACs, but the final step is sort of that like private equity realm where it's majority investments, buyouts, et cetera. And that's sort of like We play with a lot of private equity firms, but that's what a lot of brands will sort of look at like as a North Star of ultimately like a liquidity event for their investors, their team structure themselves. There are a lot of different liquidity options. I mean, there's strategic via private equity, there's going public via an IPO or a SPAC. And then there's, of course, like a strategic acquisition, but that's sort of like the differentiation. You kind of go from like friends and family to venture capital to growth equity and graduate to private equity. And that's sort of like the process. 
I love it. Thank you so much for explaining all of that, especially, I mean, even like I'm like absorbing some of it. I thought I knew like a pretty decent amount about the different investment phases and raising faces. So while you're walking through all this, right, you're now the head of partnerships at RX3 and you also are advising and investing in brands, right? Like I believe you've listed on, I think it's your beacons, you know, you're a part of Behave, you're a part of, I think, Glow Nuts, Barcode. How are you doing that all while kind of also in your day-to-day job? Were you just looking for these opportunities? Were they coming to you? How did that kind of happen? Yeah, I, I talked to a lot of people about sort of like getting your foot in the door with angel investing or advising. And I like to tell people, I think a good place to start is start with sweat equity. You probably know this better than anyone. I know this is something that you've done as part of your strategy and building your agency too. But if you can start with not having to put money on the table and more so just get a feel for where you can provide value, get equity in exchange for your relationships, your experience, et cetera, that's a great place to start. Whenever I say that, somebody will ask me, well, how do you get that opportunity? And I think that there are multiple ways of getting those opportunities. For me, a lot of them have been incoming. And I think that's because I focused on being an expert at what it is that I did so hard that someone thought of PR. Like for instance, Barcode was my first equity deal ever. And I have a special place in my heart for that brand as a result. And also Um, what a great product. Love their drinks. It is so good. And they have the best founder. Like they really are disrupting a really important market. But Barcode basically came to me and said, we'd like you to be an advisor. And we negotiated equity from there. I think it's helpful to start by proving your value to somebody and then allowing them to come to you versus you going to them where you have to like prove that you're worth something. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of like incoming in a sense. And that allowed me a lot of flexibility to sort of learn what equity structures look like and what my time commitment needed to be in association with certain deliverables. It was an easy way to do that without having to put personal capital in and allowed me to sort of, it opened up this world towards investing, which now I try to angel invest instead of advise because my time is so much more limited now. So it's a little bit easier to use capital as an excuse to be involved with brands that I'm obsessed with and then provide extra value and helping them grow from there. But incoming is really helpful. That being said, I think if you are obsessed with a brand and you have a unique perspective on the industry or something valuable that you can bring relationships wise or just experience wise, then reach out to that company and tell them what you do and why you think that you would be such an amazing fit for them. And more often than not, they're usually able to find room for you on the cap table. I love that. That's such a good piece of advice. And especially for, I feel like the audience that's listening where they're wanting to expand their not only just like their network, but they're wanting to expand their portfolio of what they're doing and what they're doing for who. Yes. And everyone now it's like everyone, I feel like it's not even a thing to have a side hustle anymore. It's almost like this thing to be able to expand your, I keep wanting to go like repertoire or like portfolio in a sense without double downing on your time. Cause I feel like that's maybe the misconception, at least that's for me, my own journey is like, how do I become the serial entrepreneur without pulling my hair out every single day and working 15 hours in a day? Oh my God, for sure. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I had those years, but I think Mm -hmm. when you find your niche and sort of you're like, 
core expertise, everything sort of like funnels into each other and it all becomes so symbiotic. Like everything that I do at investing from an institutional perspective versus investing as an angel, it's all so integrated in the sense that like there are brands that I'm advising or investing in that I'm connecting with my institutional brands. So like a TheraBody, for instance, or a Core Power or a Hydro building relationships between those brands and the brands that I'm advising, investing in, just seeing at an earlier stage is actually wildly helpful for both sides. So I think there's a way to kind of hack it where you're like optimizing your time effectively by focusing on a specific category. I love it. So let's move into your TikTok because I feel like when we talk about women that get what they're talking about and like they niche down and they provide that value. I feel like you are the most awesome example of it because from so many people that take what they talk about, whether it's a coach, whether it's a podcaster, you know, whatever that inherent value is that they're trying to showcase. Sometimes it comes off so salesy and sometimes it comes off so off-putting which I feel like we've seen this trend where we saw all these coaches, all these experts rise to the top and doing mm-hmm. that kind of style content. Yeah, it's like the see, clubhouse vibe. Yeah, but then you see someone like you where it's like you're literally putting on your makeup telling your story about private equity. And it's like, it's so refreshing and you can't look away. So I want to talk about what made you, like what led you into being like, okay, wait, I have a personal brand and I want to talk about it. I'm going to take it to TikTok. I mean. TikTok is just an incredible platform for like educational content. I don't think that there is any other platform that's as engaging. I mean, you could do YouTube, but it's just, it's harder to kind of like sit still for eight minutes versus (laughs) one and a half. So I think it was the medium makes sense for this type of content. That being said, it was the content I was looking for. I think that the best content is the content that you create when it's literally something that you want and need if it's something that resonates with you personally, there's going to be a demographic out there that it also resonates with. And I think that's kind of been my experience. That being said, I mean, the content itself is definitely like goes through hills and valleys and we're all busy. I'm really busy. So I usually like, I'll find myself only putting out like a video a week, but ultimately I try to kind of like dial into a couple of different categories. One is obviously like private equity, demystifying growth equity, And then also sort of like just democratizing private investment as a whole, I think is incredibly important. And then on the flip side, it's also talking about like to founders and brands, how can they optimize their e-commerce strategy or become more approach or attractive to a retailer, or how can they like structure themselves from the beginning to be easily acquired, which I think a lot of young founders don't really get that sort of exposure and insight. So now that I'm seeing it on the investor side, what works, what doesn't, it's become so clear to me when I look at a business that it's worth investing in or not. And what's crazy is so many people who are so passionately building businesses that should exist and are incredible, but just don't have any context around what investors would be looking for. So they struggle to raise capital for years on end and then eventually go out of business. It's super, super sad because really that business should be fundable. It just hasn't been structured in a way that it's able to be. I love that. Okay. So if one person's sitting here and she's like, has her startup, she has it for like a year and she's like, holy shit, Kira, I need you. 
what is like one piece of advice? Well, obviously, how do we work with you? But also too, what is one piece of advice that like you would give her on how to even explore what that looks like or how to frame her business in a way that's approachable to investors or, you know, sexy to investors? Yeah. I mean, it's hard because I don't want to say reverse engineer your brand from like an exit perspective. Don't think there's an aspect, there's a part of me that wants to say like, think 10 years in advance. Who do you want to acquire you? Is it like a Nestle? Is it a General Mills? Is it El Catterton or whatever? That's part of it for sure is like, there has to be an end result so that investors get their money back. Because ultimately investors aren't like donating money. They're giving you money so that they can make the return and likely ideally like higher their return versus a one X. They want to see like a two to 10 X. So depending on what stage they're investing in. So that's part of it is like, how are you going to give your investors their money back? But I think from the beginning, it's also sort of like, I'm going to speak from a consumer perspective because I primarily look at like consumer brands and products. But I was just talking to actually a woman at a coffee shop And she worked at the coffee shop because she's looking to launch this brand. And the brand itself sounds incredible. She's super passionate about the space. She's an expert in her field. It's a very authentic story. And the products themselves are phenomenal. But my feedback for her was that she wanted to launch with 15 products at once. And there are... Yeah, I see the things. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this is amazing. This is like you're clearly obsessed with the space. You're so yeah. good at what you do. You have 15 products to launch. That's better than a lot of brands that I talk to. Yeah. But it also, it makes it really, really difficult for you to identify and engage with your core consumer base and then continue to iterate on your offerings so that you're ultimately giving that consumer what they're looking for. If you're creating a brand specifically for you, this is what I told her. If you're creating a brand for you, then that's amazing. But your TAM, your total addressable market, your serviceable market, it's going to be really niche because it's going to be literally like reflections of you. What you should do is think about building a brand for the people. Think about building for your consumer and then think about how wide you can make that consumer base Mm -hmm. and then narrow into that like depth versus, I mean, I love the idea of selfishly creating brands, but if you can think about building for other people versus building for yourself, it's usually a better way to go. Get Super is an instant wellness beverage brand created by moi. So good. You won't believe it's instant. It's for those seeking convenient energy sans the jitters. That's right. We put good old-fashioned broad-spectrum hemp CBD into our organic Arabica instant coffee. It's probably Arabica, but I call it Arabica because it sounds more fun. Get super, and our hemp extract contains all the naturally occurring cannabinoids and turpentines. We include about 20 milligrams of hemp per each stick pack to give you all the fun, calm energy, plus that true entourage effect. All the benefits without getting quote unquote high, as all of our products are non-psychoactive. Get Super has been featured in Forbes US Today and was named top startup to watch in 2021 by Yahoo Finance. Also, you guys, Get Super has helped me with my anxiety. It helps me sleep better at night. I've mentioned to you guys my whole mental health journey. And honestly, this company was a just passion and project of love because of what I've gone through and what I've walked through with my own depression and anxiety. I hope that it will help you the same exact way it has helped me. 
So go ahead and get your 15% off by using the code under the influence 15 at checkout. That's right. Under the influence 15 at checkout. I think that's really, really good insight. And I also think that that's something that most people, when they speak about advice and they're giving it to entrepreneurs and they're sharing on the longevity of how to create this business, especially when we talk about consumer products, right? I mean, consumer products are, you know, I, I feel like I've been in marketing for like a decent amount of time, but when I launched Get Super and I'm still in like the trenches of understanding the product and like going to market it myself as like the founder and knowing everything that happens with production to how do we grow the consumer base and market share to evaluating different things like that, to even looking at, this is something where I want to look at equity or I want to look at investors. It is such a different way of looking at the brand. So I love that you almost kind of and I talk about this too a lot in entrepreneurship, but even for your own brand, you kind of zoom out and you look at the next 10 years. And you also look at the, like you said, like the ability for the consumer base yeah. to be niche, but it still is broad enough where it's not just you. Right. Exactly. I think that's a really good piece of advice. Yeah. I think the other thing too, is like the importance of building a moat around a brand that's defensible mm-hmm. is especially now in today's market where it's just that the market is so saturated in so many different categories. And that doesn't mean that there isn't room for people. There totally is room. But I think when you think about creating a brand, creating a product that will eventually, you know, garner investment and be acquired or go public, it has to be differentiated enough that other people can't copy it. And I think that comes down to like, what from a differentiation perspective can you do to build community, to build a brand, to build content that can't be replicated. And then on the flip side, you're also building something that is protected from a unit economics perspective. You're building a product that has a great supply chain. You have manufacturers, maybe there's proprietary aspects, there's IP, there are trademarks, there are things about the product and your manufacturing and supply chain that are differentiated beyond just being brand. And I think when you match like a differentiated brand and community with a differentiated product and supply chain, Mm -hmm. that's when you really have like magic or lightning in a bottle. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. So how are you now kind of working? Because I feel like you also, again, I'm like obsessed with your beacons because I feel like there's any way to market yourself as a personal brand. I'm like, I need to copy this shit down to like the team. <laughs> like you have, like you have everything. Oh my God, I'm on like, like your PR to exactly what yes. you do to your TikTok. And then you even have like this Shopify presentation, which I want you to speak on because oh. it's like, so yeah. in depth, it's so valuable. If anyone has a brand, like they should definitely download it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's actually it's crazy. I did I did a talk for Shopify about like mm. brand boat building and strategy. Wow. And that was literally the deck that I uploaded. I think that it's so funny. I've really struggled. It's funny that you say that like the personal marketing that I've been so strong because it's something that candidly, I've really struggled with. It's hard to define yourself in one to two sentences where that's sort of like, it's your Instagram bio. It's like who you are because we're so multifaceted. So that's interesting. But a lot of what I've been doing is like, as I get different opportunities and experiences, I've been saving that content and repurposing it so that it fills out who I am as an individual. What I love about Beacons is they, which shout out to Beacons, they're freaking amazing if you need a link in bio, but 
what I love about them is they've created like a visually compelling space to be able to share multiple aspects of who you are as an individual, as a professional. So my TikTok, which is very personal, but also kind of like melds with this professional realm can go right next to like a formal presentation that I did for Shopify. And that can go next to the institutional investments that I'm supporting from a value add perspective through RX3, which I love. Yeah. No, no, no. I love it. So let's kind of go back a little bit. I know I've just been picking your brain and that's just because I'm like, I'm such a fangirl. I had to get to all my questions that were like burning through me, (laughs) but I want to talk about early on in your career. So what was like the biggest influence for you in business? Like, how did you know that you wanted to go into PR? How did you know that you obviously wanted to ask Sarah for that exposure and you wanted to start investing in the brands? Like who influenced you in that kind of business-minded way? Oh my gosh, that is such a good question. This is a terrible answer and I'm sorry in advance for saying that (laughs) it's so true and I can't lie. I really just want to be the best. That's not a terrible answer. It's a terrible answer. It's... (laughs) Terrible answer, but it's easily replicated. So there we go. Like a very tangible takeaway. I didn't care if I was like flipping burgers at In and Out. Like Mm -hmm. I literally just wanted to be the best at whatever it is that I was doing. So I actually went to school. I wanted to be a lawyer. I was pre law. I never went to law school, thank God, because my husband's a lawyer and now I see what it is. And, you know, shout out to all the lawyers because you do something I could never do. But I wanted to do law and I fell into PR because. It was an opportunity. I actually started at Covet as an intern. So it was early, early days. But I think part of what's made me successful over the years, and success is so relative, and it doesn't feel like I'm successful when I say that out loud, but I understand like in some people's minds I might be. I think it just comes down to like doing something that you are deeply passionate about and being okay with sharing that you're passionate about something publicly. Like for me, I never thought of PR as being like a small segment of the marketing structure. I thought of PR as being like the be all end all. Every brand needs this. And I believe that wholeheartedly. And so it was important to me to be the best at PR. And then it became important to me to be the best at influencer marketing and then affiliate marketing and then anything top of funnel. And then through that, I wanted to be the best manager. I wanted to be the best boss. I wanted to be the best employee. And my husband will probably say that he wishes this carried over into my personal life where I wanted to be the best (laughs) wife. I still haven't learned to cook. Can't clean. But cooking is overrated anyways. Thank you. Yes. I have a Brava and I use it like twice a month, but professionally, this rings true. And now that I'm in private equity, I'm learning things that I'm forcing myself, forcing myself. It's not fun to get uncomfortable with the things that I did not know. And that's things like financial modeling and learning how to read a PL and understanding term sheet negotiations. It's just all of these were things that like we don't have exposure to unless you go get your MBA or you know, what have you. And and luckily I got exposure early because of the acquisition with Power and Court Square. I got to see all of this and I got one-on-one lessons with our CEO. It was, I was very, very lucky, but I think using resources that are public, something like for me, I'm into Wall Street Oasis. Like I'm into a simple model. Like I'm doing the boring stuff and I'm doing that work because I know that if I can run the value outside and then I can also be an incredible quantitative investor, then I'm lethal in a boardroom. And that's sort of like ultimately what I'm working towards in my career. Wow. That is so powerful. 
And I love it. I still don't think that answer, there's anything wrong with that. I think that again, there's something with entrepreneurship and being career driven where there is this need and there is this hunger to not only, like you said, kind of be the best, but also to want to learn and to want to continue to expand and to constantly kind of look at what is next. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's just the hunger and that's just obviously what's led you to the amazing career that you've had, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like one other thing on that too is just being comfortable with being uncomfortable, mm -hmm. like almost like seeking out that discomfort because it means you haven't experienced something before and forcing yourself to ask the question or say, I don't know this and I want to learn this you'll learn it so much faster. And then it's just another tool that you can add to the toolbox. I love it. I absolutely agree. So I want to ask you this too, because I feel like, again, you have like, I love that you always talk about trends and I love that you always talk about what you're seeing from yeah. consumer brands or just from brands kind of starting up. The world we live in right now, it's almost inevitable that a brand is going to have this cultivated audience, whether it's on social media whether it's just their email list, whatever it is, they have an audience now and they're expected to show up. Yeah. So when what ways do you feel like brands could best influence their community while still being acknowledging the fact that they're still a brand and they still have to do business, but they also have this community that they have to answer to now? Oh my God. I do not envy the job of a founder these days. It is an impossible job. It really is. And I completely, I feel for them. It's a talent that I respect hugely, but I think the first step is answering to your community versus answering to your internal operations. And it's hard to say that because I'm obviously, I'm speaking from the investment side and ultimately like you have to have a business, you have to have a healthy business. It has to grow. But if your consumers are looking for something from you that they're not getting, then you're going to lose that consumer. And it's more important to maintain and grow that base. The other thing too is like, I'll look at brands that have 5,000 followers on Instagram versus 500,000, mm -hmm. but their community is so much more engaged that their LTV is stronger. Their retention is in incredibly high, you know? And as a result, that like CAC to LTV ratio is so much more attractive than say a brand with 500,000 followers who can only sell to 0.5% of that community. So it's not a real community. I think the first place is like, generating that community and then servicing that community. But from a content perspective, I would say leading with education and value is hugely important. For instance, a lot of our portfolio companies, this is something that I've been talking about with a lot of those brands, as well as brands I advise and chat to. If you're sending an email blast to an email list of 50,000 subscribers, and that email is like, buy this, mm -hmm. nobody is going to engage with it and they're probably going to unsubscribe. But if every time you send an email to your consumer, to your subscription base, it provides value, whether it's a discount code, a unique opportunity to like buy one gift one to a family member for the holidays. One of my friends is the founder of ClearStem and they have this you probably know. <laughs> long friend, long time friends over there. Long time friend, but I love what they do. Instead of offering just like a flat discount for their sales, like you buy a product and then they'll reimburse you. Yeah. Like it's just such a sticky, like creative, the more creative you can be about like bringing value to your consumers, the longer they're going to stay with you and the more diehard they're going to be for the brand. 
I don't know if that answered your question, actually. No, I mean, I think it does. And I think using ClearSTEM, I mean, speaking of a brand with a diehard community that is just like eager for the next thing, it's totally them. And I also love that. I think that there's, again, for those like listening, whether it's like they're thinking about starting their own brand or those that have their own brand, they're looking to really expand that. I think that leaning into the coolness of the brand and like the founder kind of story and those kind of things where it's like, we're not selling it to you. We're just simply talking about the facets that makes us us and like what we want to do for you. I think that that's what sells nowadays. I also, I love this wave of brands that are almost like enveloping consumers into their internal structure. Like for instance, one of my other friends, Ali, who's the founder of Modern Picnic, she just did a crowdfund and we, mm. we can talk about crowdfund raising. I think there are pros and cons yeah. as a founder, just so everybody knows it can be very expensive, very time consuming, but I think it's a really cool way to get, even if they only invest $150, a consumer that is a quote unquote investor in the brand is going to be way more of a diehard consumer than just a consumer that received your email and bought one product. So that's another way I've been seeing, you know, Array. I love SIF. I love Niche. I love that brand. I love that they allocate marketing spend towards creating consumer-centric activations. Of course, they do influencer events. They do media mailers. But they also create unique experiences for their consumers to meet them and hang out with them and have everything that an influencer would have. I think the way that we market is going to shift more towards those like micro niche influencers and your like actual core consumer base versus being like a macro influencer or celebrity approach. I love that so much. And yeah, I love, I love what Array does. I mean, I feel like Array just came out of the gates. Just like a bullet train. That's amazing. So I want to chat about one last thing with you because I feel like this is something where I'm really actually eager to hear your thoughts. What are you seeing right now from brands and consumers on social media? And what do you think is actually working, right? Because we've had this huge balloon that was the meta balloon that I feel like is slowly just deflating like every single day. You have the acquisition or the takeover of Twitter. You have TikTok that seems to be like the only thing people enjoy nowadays. Mm -hmm. What are you kind of seeing and what does it mean for brands right now? Oh, I mean, what I'm seeing that I wish I saw more of is collaboration. Mm -hmm. I think that this is a bold statement, but I think that the future of marketing is partnerships that are like-minded, non-competing. And I think there are a lot of like Shopify plugins that are launching that are making this a lot easier to do, but I'll use another one of my friend's brands, Sabina with Doe as a perfect example. She's basically like, she understands that the modern consumer has ADD. Like they are constantly being distracted by everything else that's launching. And instead of just like constantly creating new products and like pumping them out like a farm, she's collaborating with brands that target different consumer demographics. So in one week, she launched a collaboration with Purely Elizabeth. And that's sort of your like, that's your like national consumer that loves health and wellness. They It speaks to like a component of the dough brand, but yeah. not the full dough brand. You know, it's not the dough consumer that wears the I like it raw sweatshirt. If yeah. you know what I mean. <laughs> And then the other collaboration that she launched in the same week is a collab with Deadpool. She launched a chapstick with Deadpool. 
And that is that consumer. That's the consumer that wants something edgy, that wants something like it's the early adopter consumer. And the fact that she's able to target all of these different subsets of like an existing demographic of just somebody who wants something that tastes good and is not as bad for them as whatever, but also something you can eat raw. Like the fact that she's able to do that, I think that's the perfect case study for how partnerships can build brand and evangelism amongst consumers. So that's one thing that I am seeing that I really love. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, the fact that she's also just able to turn and burn so many collaborations in such a quick amount of time is just beyond impressive. Yeah. And it's wild because I would bet money that that is like 1% of the collaboration opportunities that actually come across her desk. And that is another thing that is like hugely, hugely important that I want to see more of is brands editing themselves. Like I said, like you don't have to launch with 15 products. You don't have to collaborate with every brand that tells you that they want to collaborate. It's the same thing as an influencer. Like you want to be picky about what you're actually putting out into the world and make sure that it's like authentically a great representation of what you're looking to build. I love that so much. And I couldn't agree more with you. Kira, this has been absolutely amazing. I have a final question. I feel like I keep saying that, but I have one more question. (laughs) What does influence mean to you? Oh my God, that is a great question. I think influence is being okay with not always sharing everything. I think it comes back to editing. I think that ultimately at its core, influence is not just like a skill. It's more of an innate quality that proves that you have a unique perspective. I think in this day and age, I'm watching myself as I choose these words because I want to make sure that I get the right point across. In this world, I think that we're incentivized to have more followers. We're incentivized to have bigger audience. Brands are incentivized to sell to more people, have more revenue, be profitable. There's always more. And I think influence is having five followers or five friends that will buy anything that you say they need to buy. Mm -hmm. It's less so about like how many people can you reach And more so about like, what impact can you have on those people? Like for me, I think less obviously about what I can sell. I'm not an influencer. I don't have a real social media following. It's kind of just a professional space. And I think about like, if I can influence women to recognize that private equity is really not all that scary and totally doable, regardless of your background, If I can have a call with a young girl who is considering spending all of her life savings thus far on an MBA, and I can say, join an early stage company, get equity that you think is going to perform well, and then use that as your pseudo MBA instead, get the experience. Like I would much rather be able to have those conversations and be able to help help drive true impact in a very select few people's lives than have... 300,000 followers on Instagram and not have them listen to me. That is a terrible answer. No. (laughs) (laughs) Your answers are actually great. (laughs) That's a hard question. What? I can't wait to go back and listen to what everybody else answers and be like, God damn, I wish I said that. No. It was fantastic. Honestly, that question, even if people, I don't even know if you got the questions. We scheduled this interview so fast. (laughs) I did not. That was cold. That was cold turkey, guys. 
We'll just send me your recording of your real answer. We'll, we'll just copy and paste on top. That's real life. Just roll with it. No, honestly, I think that you're really onto something. And I feel like that we are so fatigued with the following. We're so fatigued with what we're seeing on social media right now because it all seems so fake. It all seems so out of our hands controlled, right? Like the term comfort influencer started coming from the influencer that we would actively seek out on our social media, even if we didn't see them on our highlights or our stories or our feed, because they made us feel good. And because it was someone that either A, we related to or B, like we had some sort of, or they offered up some sort of value that we kept coming back for, right? Like my favorite comfort influencer is Shannon Ford. And it's honestly because she doesn't give a fuck. And I overthink about everything. That is amazing, Dave. I need to follow her. Oh, she's great. She's absolutely great. And it's one of those things, though, where I think that is what you're talking about with influence, right? It's this power of that connection. Mm -hmm. And that connection, whether it's, like you said, five true friends or a larger community, as long as that community is showing up and is actively listening and actively engaged, you have something that is impacting people, right? And I think that's the core of what we talk about. And I feel like a lot of times too, we've just gotten so lost in translation with the rush hour of what's biggest, what's best, how many more people are you reaching? How do I monetize this? How do we grow that? That we lose a lot of that. And I feel like that was a really refreshing answer. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I don't know if this is helpful or relevant even, but I had a call with a girl that I'm mentoring earlier today. And she said something to me that kind of like hurt my soul for her. It was basically, she said, I don't feel comfortable like going for these like larger positions or like going after what I want because I don't know what value I can bring. I'm so early in my career. I don't know like what I can do to provide value to somebody who is so much further ahead. And it hurts so bad because it comes back to that idea of like influence, education, like value her perspective, even if she's only had two years in the industry, is just as valuable as someone's perspective that's had 10 years in the industry. It's just different. And sometimes having that like outside perspective is critical for success. So I think too, a part of like my answer for influence and what it is, is like the value that you can bring that's unique and innate to you that it it can't be replicated by somebody else because they haven't had the same life experience. Oh my God. There it is. There's the answer. That was stunning. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. No, seriously though. I totally agree. And I think that was actually really powerful and something that's never really been said on the show yet before with that specific question is that that is your true influence is who you are and where you're currently sitting and the life experience that you've had. And that is your innate offering because you bring that perspective or those values to someone in a community or other people that don't share the same thing. Exactly. It's so weird that we always want more. Like the grass is always greener. There's always something else to accomplish. And I definitely like I am a victim to that for sure. But it's wild when you look at the things that you've experienced and accomplished and how they all sort of knit together with a unique perspective. It's just, it's crazy. I love it. Kara, where can everyone find you, work with you, hang out with you? Yeah. I mean, the best is probably my beacons, which is in my bio on Instagram. My Instagram is at Kira McKenzie, K-I-R-A-M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E. And then my TikTok is Kira McKenzie. So same thing, just drop the IE. 
Amazing. Well, thank you so much for going under the influence with us. Thank you for having me. This is so fun. So fun. Amazing.